Welcome to Animated Conversations, the podcast where we talk all things animation with brilliant creators and professionals in the industry. Today, we're joined by a special guest, Fraser McLean. Fraser, welcome to the show. And could you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, Andy. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Um, I've been working in the animation industries uh, since the late 1980s. Um, I got into um, movie work initially in the area of film editing in the cutting room as a, a picture and sound editor. And the door of, to the animation world opened up to me in 1987 with uh, Disney moving to London to do, or Disney opening up a studio in London to do Roger Rabbit. So I got in as a uh, trainee special effects in-betweener working under Chris Knott in uh, Camden in London. Chris was the guy that created the extraordinary system of special effects for making the characters look three-dimensional and I did that for a number of years following on with a team of people at Passion Pictures. Uh, pretty much everybody from Roger Rabbit Effects moved to Passion and we did lots of breakfast cereal commercials and uh, toilet freshener, kitchen cleaner and all that kind of stuff. Anything where an animated character jumped off a bottle or a box onto a kitchen uh, work surface and terrified children having their breakfast. Um, and then I joined Cambridge Animation Systems in 1993 and was one of the first um, pencil to paper animation artists to make the jump into digital work uh, a couple of years before Toy Story came out. And I was traveling around the world training people how to use software that everybody was as terrified of as everybody is of AI now. And my knowledge of live action cartoon combination uh, combined with my expertise in Animo got me hired onto Space Jam, Warner Brothers. I followed that by moving over to be artistic coordinator at Disney in the States on Tarzan. And then I was outside the industry for quite a long period when my parents got sick and uh, eventually got the door open again back into the animation family by writing a book called Setting the Scene, the Art and Evolution of Animation Layout for Chronicle Books in San Francisco. So I kind of became the go-to guy for a layout because nobody else wanted to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, there'll be lots of opportunity to talk about it on this episode, hopefully. Um, can you start... I, I look forward to it. Can yeah. you start by kind of explaining what a layout artist does? Um, and why their role is kind of pivotal to the production process. I think it's important to remember that the, one of the opening a chapter titles for the book is What Do You Mean by Layout? So I interviewed over a hundred different uh, artists, technicians, camera operators, scene planners um, in the course of the research for the book and every single conversation began with me saying What do you mean by layout? Because if you go for the very simple distinction in the 60s and 70s between the feature animation that was being done at Disney and the series animation that was being done at Hanna-Barbera, if we're using North America as our like measuring post, which is most of the, um, most of the book is focusing on what happened in, in the United States, then a layout artist is um, part of a team of people who work from the storyboard to make absolutely sure that each individual shot in a scene um, can be sent out into production without any remaining questions needing to be asked about what the ingredients are. 
uh, how the camera is moving, how the action is framed, what the path of action is for the characters, how large or small they are in the frame. And you have to remember that, you know, the per second budget for television or feature animation, this is always a, a high number. So you don't want a single frame of animation that is not necessary because all the levels that are involved, if you go across the columns of an exposure sheet, it's, it's a fiercely practical, pragmatic process. So very often people will have um, grand ideas about what can be accomplished and they're watching the finished animatic where the storyboard sketches have been edited together uh, with the audio, the music and the, the spot effects. And it can look very, very um, editorially fluid, very exciting, very comic, very dr dramatic or whatever. But some son of a bitch has actually got to cost it like frame by frame and say, can we afford this to be a wide angle with the crowd visible in the background or do we need to play this on a mid shot or a two shot? So what you see sometimes in these making of documentaries with the storyboard to um, finished color comparison is colossally misleading because if you actually dig up some of the pages of uh, the workbook from a film like Iron Giant or Tarzan or Emperor's New Groove, you'll see a tiny little squiggle that appeared, uh, you know, very, very eloquent in uh, performance or, or character silhouette terms, uh, but very often it will just be floating in the rectangle and you cannot tell sometimes from the storyboard or the animatic, is this a cut to another shot or is this a continuous camera move or all of these logistical things have to be solved and the layout department is where all of the people get together to look at that material and say how do we get this on the screen by sending it out into the different departments that need to create the artwork that will give that to the audience in full colour. And so do you think it's a combination of both a pragmatic mindset and a creative mindset? Or kind of is the lay artist effectively kind of troubleshooting for how this is all going to get up on the screen. Um. <laughs> so I, I just, the, the interesting thing at the moment is I'm in conversation with, and I can't, I can't really say who these people are, but there are three giant like globe straddling animation companies. And you know, you see the movies and you think, oh, everybody there knows what they're doing and everybody's, uh, you know, in agreement and there's, there's, no, there's no holes in the process but three very large, well-known companies that are all um, at a point of executive changeover where there's people coming in going, oh, we don't need this, or, oh, that's, you know, we're, people have come to me and asked me behind the scenes and off the record what to do when they're working on a series project where there is no budget for layout. And I've had to say, how did they arrive at a budget without speaking to layout experts? It's, it's this, they're getting it completely a horse and cart the wrong way around. And it sounds like but if you the, really want to know. And I was going to say, and it sounds like it's the yeah. uh, quintessential example of a false economy. That kind of like you, you cut back on layout economy. and then the, it costs you far more at the end. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. It's like cutting back on food hygiene, you know. It's like saying, yeah, we don't need to pay the surgeon to wash 
her hands before she operates on the patient. It's like, yes, you do. <laughs> you need a room where there's like lots of soap and like that's that, that it's basic hygiene for animation if you want to think of it that way. If you don't want people to, uh, you know, get food poisoning from your food or if you don't want people to die from a bacterial infection in surgery, surgery there, there is a kind of like equivalent in movie making or in series um, animation. If you want things to go well, um, then up front you need to slow down and do all the things that a lot of people don't think are sexy, don't think are interesting. And that was another of the problems with the book. Um, I kept meeting very, very angry layout artists who had spent sometimes 20 or 30 years watching these documentaries being made, watching these books being written, and the director of the documentary or the author of the book would walk right past them and go up to one of the lead character animators and go, so how did you make this film? And of course the lead character animator will sit there for hours in front of the camera going, oh, then I did this, then I did that. It's like, no, you didn't. Like the reason you were able to do that was you turned up in the morning and on your desk was the background layout, the character layout and the camera diagrams. And that was what you worked from. You were not the author of that scene in that way. But a lot of these people, their work was literally crumpled up and thrown in the bin. So even like locating in the archives character layouts was pretty difficult because, you know, in Disney, they were sometimes referred to as blue sketch. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of collaboration and discussion that goes on between the layout artists and the, the lead character animators. And, you know, again, it depends on what there's time for. But, you know, if you look at, going back to the original question, if you look at... Um, an Alex Lovey storyboard for Yogi Bear or the Jetsons, what he has drawn is pretty much what winds up on the screen. And most of the layouts for the Jetsons are like squiggles because they were doing 26 minute episodes, high turnover. But you've got to remember that these artists were the people that worked at MGM on the Tom and Jerry's. So when you look at that qualitative difference between the camera work or Anything, any of the elements at all in a seven-minute cinema short to what you have with a 26-minute um, episode, those logistics are very, very different. And these people were extremely good at being accurate and fast because they already knew the production pipeline well enough to know that if they drew a very, very simple, clear indication of what Yogi Bear was doing uh, with a picnic basket, that they, they already knew the people that were going to have to interpret that drawing and turn it into all the other component parts. But then if you look at some of the stuff from, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame at Disney or whatever, the actual animatic um, sketches are radically different to what winds up in the, There's a particular scene in Emperor's New Groove where Pacha and... Um, Cusco, who's still in, in llama form, are going back to the village and there's a couple of guys playing chess saying, oh yeah, this terribly scary woman is waiting for you up at your house. And the original storyboard, which then became the animatic, is played as though they're walking horizontally along a street in a village. The actual design for where the village is in the movie is at the top of a very sharp mountain. So everything plays out on a vertical and nothing that you see in the original animatic is what winds up on the screen. And all of that is a question of the director sitting down. And to go, to go back to the question of cost, one of the most interesting and pivotal um, interviews that I did for the book was with Bill Perkins. 
And I met Bill when he was um, working on Space Jam at Warner Brothers, but he had been a production designer on Aladdin at Disney, and he was mentored by Ken O'Connor. And if you really want to know what feature animation layout is in cinematic terms, think of Disney's Peter Pan. Think of You Can Fly, You Can Fly. And that amazing like sense of vertigo that you get where you see Peter Pan's and Wendy's shadows going onto the clouds over um, Tower Bridge. And it, it's in, exquisite, absolutely beautiful. You really believe that you're flying hundreds of feet up in the air. That was done on the vertical multiplane and it was laid out by Ken O'Connor. Ken O'Connor said to Bill Perkins, the layout department holds the purse strings to the production. And there were all kinds of pioneering um, efforts that were made in the, in the movies in the 50s, uh, like Peter Pan and Cinderella, where you did basically a, a, what they would think of as a cinematic pass on the raw storyboard. But it's so easy for people to get this idea into their head that once the storyboard has been turned into an animatic, uh, that's it, you can wash your hands and walk off. Absolutely not. You know, you have to be able also in a movie um, at the level of a, a Disney animated movie, what are the elements that are going to be animated by the special effects department? What are the vehicles or props that are going to need to be modeled in wireframe? And that goes back to Pinocchio. I mean, the the, the gypsy caravan where um, Stromboli imprisons uh, um, Pinocchio and the cage that uh, Pinocchio is in, those were physical models. Uh, they were um, done on a wash-off cell process, so they were filmed live action. And then, you know, three-dimensional elements are another component, another department, another cost. So it's that thing of somebody sitting down going, I see what you're imagining through this sketch, but we're the people who actually have to tell you how to deliver that, and you then have to decide whether that is cost effective. Yeah, and, um, and that sort of goes back to your point about not planning for long enough with the layout, is that in some ways that they have an overview of the production and an understanding of the cost of these creative ideas. So they're an ally to somebody that wants to manage the budget professionally and kind of carefully. I remember I was watching uh, a, a behind the scene things on a documentary on Lilo and Stitch. And um, the, oh, yeah. the, directors, yeah. the director of that said they'd just come off of doing, I think they'd worked on Mulan and uh, I think it was a, mm -hmm. they were yeah. very proud of, Florida. They, yeah, they were really Florida. proud of the yeah. work, but uh, I think there are, there are a catalogue of divorces and family breakups because everyone was worked ragged. <laughs> and so they decided they were going to go into Lilo and Stitch and they, they didn't want anyone to get a divorce because of this. And they, and they talked yeah, about how they planned the animation. So, okay, we won't have lots of pockets on the clothes. So we'll cut down on animated work there. A lot of the action will take place in shadow, uh, under the shade, so we won't have to worry about shadows and those issues. And, uh -huh. yeah. and that kind of, that pre-thinking through some of the uh, issues in such a way that no audience is ever going to think that any corners have been cut because you've just worked out how to stage the action so it doesn't cause you problems. Yeah, well, one of the other things that was so effective on Lilo and Stitch was that Rick Sluter, um, they brought back um, Maurice Noble. Now, Maurice Noble began his career in animation as one of the background artists on Bambi. 
uh, doing those beautiful watercolors. And if you want to talk about visual economy, go and look at Tyrus Wong. Um, I, I was this close to being able to talk to Tyrus for the book, but he, uh, there was a documentary being made about his life at the same time. He lived to be 106. Um, but what they did with the watercolor backgrounds um, on Lilo and Stitch had not really been done since the you know the last time people were doing this in a routine way was on the 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 Tom and Jerry's and the Barney Bears and the MGM cartoons up until the time they closed that down and opened up as as uh, as Hanna Barbera. But the watercolor backgrounds give the audience a sense of richness in the imagery, and then there's very careful um, the color model department. Um, at Disney uh, in both Florida and Burbank, the way that they managed to integrate the character design and the digital um, cell painting of the characters so that the colors, you, you didn't miss the idea that there were tone mats or edge lights or whatever, the way that you would expect them to appear on uh, a, a movie like Roger Rabbit or in some scenes on Tarzan. But they, they were just very clever in terms of the art direction, production design, the, the, the um, synchronization of what was happening visually between the color palette for the characters, the geometry, the internal proportions of the characters and how that worked with these very very beautiful uh, watercolor paintings that were, were, were used for the backgrounds. And they, they thought that they were going to have a big problem going back to the watercolor on paper techniques and actually all the background artists if you uh, if you ask them you know they picked up on it pretty quickly because a lot of them are doing plein air painting anyway and yeah there's ways of making making the audience think they've seen stuff they haven't seen <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think the outcome of on lila and stitch is according to this uh, documentary i was watching that they were kind of under budget by a couple of million and then so the studio went well you've got some more money to spend um, why don't you? Is there anything else you want to do? And I, I thought that was a great example of how going into a movie where you have a kind of quite a clear understanding of how you're going to achieve it, um, and you plan you plan for that rather than not really having to grapple with. Um, you know, I, I got the impression on Mulan that a lot of those questions maybe were. Um, the, the ambition and the scale meant that it was quite hard to control kind of what they were doing on Mulan in well, the same I way. Well, I mean, you know, again, it's a, it's a question of um, whether you feel like you're making an animated Jerry Bruckheimer movie or whether you're actually trying to measure things out so that you have the grandeur of the um, Han army appearing in the Tongshao Pass and, the, the you know, what was done on, on Mulan was mind-blowing. They were, they were, I mean, very, very seriously referencing Kurosawa and all the, you know, it, it was, they, they were making, it's a stunningly beautiful movie. And it's a combination of high drama and um, vaudeville slapstick comedy. And it, it works it, beautifully. I, I obviously, you know, because I, 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 I spent a week shadowing Jeff Dutton, who was the artistic coordinator on Mulan at the beginning of my stint working on, on Tarzan, but what I should probably explain is that up until I joined the crew on Tarzan, the majority of my work from 1987 to 1997, 10 whole years working in the animation industry, was dominated by the work that I did on Roger Rabbit, the work that I did for Passion Pictures, and the work that we did on Space Jam, which is largely animated characters running around against live action plates. Now, when I say live action plate in the digital sense, 
people often don't realize that what we were working on in 1987 on Who Framed Roger Rabbit was photographic paper peg registered enlargements of every single frame in black and white. And we would have to begin by tracing off the perspective and checking the lighting sources to be able to synchronize everything because the camera was moving all the time in a way that on Bedknobs and Broomsticks or Mary Poppins, the camera had been locked off to, again, make it easier and less expensive for the artists to match what was happening in the cartoon realm to what was happening in the live action realm. And so just, when I, I walked just want, into the... Sorry, to finish uh -huh. it, uh, yeah. the, what I just wanted yeah. to say, I'm very curious about how that worked because when I look at Roger Rabbit uh, or Space Jam, there's, there's stuff there that feels like it's better than it's done now, particularly... Uh, the eye lines, the eye lines on all of those movies are immaculate. They're they're really good. So, so what what makes that stand up in a way that I I can see something that was done more recently that combines animation with live action and it will look a lot sloppier. Well, again, um, if we look specifically at Roger Rabbit, it was very tightly storyboarded um, and. Uh, I, when I spoke to Roy Nesbitt, when, when I started work on the book, um, the reason the book got written was that when I was uh, freshly finished with my work on Tarzan, which came out in 1999, I started in the year 2000 being invited back in the UK to go in to different animation courses and explain to them how they ought to be teaching animation production because I'd been away from Scotland for 15 years you know I left in 1985 to go down to London to work on Little Dorrit in, in, in the cutting room I got on to Roger Rabbit in 1987 when I got back to Scotland in 2000 um, there had been nobody teaching animation certainly not commercial animation nobody at all I think Edinburgh College of Art had a course in like art animation, but not nobody was trying. When, when I was a student in the 80s in Glasgow, the only time I ever heard Walt Disney's name, it was being used as an insult. People did not think that, that uh, Disney was something to aspire to. It was something to look down your nose at, that it was vulgar, it was crass, it was all these things. And I got onto Roger Rabbit by showing them a portfolio of drawings that all the drawings that my art school tutors told me were terrible because they were too traditional, they were too classical, they were too academic. And I had zero animation experience, but because they wanted the characters to look three-dimensional, you have to remember that when you watch Mary Poppins, the interaction between the animators, animated characters and the real performers it all takes place in a parallel universe and they're in that universe for a short period in the movie. They jump into a chalk painting that the uh, chimney sweep has done on the ground and when they get into the other world, miraculously they're all in brightly coloured costumes and they dust off the chalk and they are very heavily lit and the camera is locked off or it only does a drift to the left or a drift to the right, but the camera never turns and the camera never tilts. There's no rotation because that would introduce all the problems of perspective. And the idea back then was we will make the real people look as colorful and flat as the cartoon characters and nobody will see the join. When Zemeckis and Spielberg 
decided that Richard Williams was their man for being the animation director on Roger Rabbit. And I know this word of mouth from Roy Nesbitt, who was in the room when this conversation took place. Um, Zemeckis was keen to communicate to Dick Williams that, oh, we've done our homework. We know that we're not supposed to change the lighting. We're not supposed to move the camera. And Dick Williams is like, the hell you won't. Like, you're Bob Zemeckis. You're, this is what you're famous for. And, you know, you will you move the camera as much as you like and we'll, we'll find a way around it. And, of course, there were all these people in the background going, oh, no, don't say that, don't say that. And we, we then had to do it frame by frame, literally frame by frame. But the eyeline stuff that you're talking about on both Roger Rabbit and Space Jam was down to the people working on the live action sets, the puppeteers and the props people. There was a, a full scale um, uh, foam rubber stand-in of Roger Rabbit, which is now, I think, at the ILM headquarters in Northern California. So Hoskins was rehearsing to the eyeline of the stand-in figure. And uh, also, there's even a shot in Roger Rabbit where they got the eyeline wrong, and Dick Williams slides Roger Rabbit up the wall uh, to meet Hoskins' gaze, and then he goes back down. So they were very clever about this, but they were working, everybody was working from photographic enlargements that were peg registered onto their desk. Um, and you were, you were making the line of the perspective on a floor grid or of the architectural detail in the background by tracing that with a pencil onto the paper before you started animating. Um, and so it, it was a, an extraordinary team effort. But going back to your question about the role of layout, the translation through to, to what actually has to happen to get the movie onto the, the screen, um, the larger part that's only at the beginning of Roger Rabbit in the maroon cartoon that there are painted backgrounds. And I think there was only two uh, scenes from that whole short at the beginning that were still going through production when I joined. So in the effects department, my colleague Dave Sigrist was animating the electricity flashes when Roger's fingers go into the power sockets on the wall. But for most of the movie, we never saw pencil artwork for the scenic elements because there were no painted backgrounds. And it was the Dale Bear unit in Flower Street in Glendale that did the um, Toontown sequence where you do have painted backgrounds in the kind of nightmare sequence in Roger Rabbit. That was the only bit of animation that was done in the United States. Everything else was done in Camden. But that eyeline stuff, very tightly worked out by dozens and dozens of people, but working very logistically and very pragmatically from a, you know, a rough storyboard or animatic saying, what does this actually mean if the audience are going to believe that these characters coexist in three-dimensional space? Amazing, amazing. That's kind of fascinating to, to just to get a view of how that kind of works and also to um, that anecdote about not worrying about moving the camera around because you're because you know oh, you're man. so used I to mean, kind of was, those that, things that being was... locked off and flatly lit yeah and and it was you know to to be fair during production it things went slowly because people this was the first time anybody had done this the the first day that i actually turned up for work <laughs> myself and Chris Jenkins who got hired on the same day and uh, there was about eight or nine of us going into different departments into Matt and Roto into special effects and they were recruiting a lot of people 
and every every new group of new hires you'd be put into um, a little projection room and they showed us the test footage which is now on YouTube if you if you google Roger Rabbit Roger Rabbit test footage you'll see an actor who's not Bob Hoskins going down a staircase into an alleyway with uh, flashing red lights and headlights and, and honestly it's impossible now in 2023 to communicate when I talk to students about this you have to imagine what it was like seeing that in 1997 the lights came on afterwards and the room was just full of people with wide eyes and open mouths going how on uh, what did we just look at what what have we let ourselves in for? How did they do that? And there was a great deal of retrospective simplification. If you listen to the DVD commentary or the Blu-ray commentary, all the ILM guys, Chris Knott, who developed this multi-level mat, uh, tone mat and rim light, hand-drawn frame-by-frame, level-by-level technique, um, his name wasn't even mentioned when they went up to accept the visual effects Oscar. And in the commentary on the DVD, they say, of course, and then ILM added the shadows. And I'm like, I don't think you did. You were not in the room when those shadows were added frame by frame pencil. You composited those shadows. You did all the work on the optical printers, but as God is my witness, you were not in the room when they were added. But it was, I think, part of a kind of game at the time of trying to convince people that there was some secret technology somewhere that was making everything look three-dimensional in some weird undisclosed digital way and it just isn't true um i've got some of the artwork in my cardboard boxes behind me that, that what we actually did to make everything look so solid and to follow the lighting scheme that was on the live action set absolutely I, w I wonder as well whether there might have been an element where because as I understand it on Roger Rabbit, most of the animation team were in the UK and... All of them, apart from the animation team that were working on Toontown, everybody was in Andrea Stasia, James Baxter, Nick Ranieri. Uh, and Industrial Light and Magic would have been US-based. So, so there may have... Yes, of course. So yeah. there may have been that kind of, um, well, we're not going to promote the team in the UK. We're going to promote ourselves and kind of the... I, I think it's absolutely shameful that, that Chris Knott's name is not mentioned more often. Um, and it, it's my campaign everywhere I go, because the reason it works is because of this technique that he had developed in the years that he was working with um, Richard Williams and Roy Nesbitt, and also with John Leatherbarrow. Don't forget the camera operators. I mean, a big part of what everybody needs to understand about layout is in the digital era, you're scanning and digitizing artwork and a great many animation artists have grown up with their idea of a camera is what they've got on their Samsung or their iPhone. So the idea of lens language, the idea of cinematography where you make choices of the, about the optical impact of a physical lens on a particular scene, in hand-drawn animation, that's what you choose to draw or paint. So it's your knowledge and understanding of how to render or bend perspective. And there's some extraordinary artwork for the scene in the Maroon cartoon where Roger Rabbit uh, turns into a balloon because his mouth gets stuck over the Succolux vacuum cleaner. And we see him spin through the air and the camera follows him. And there are reflections of him in the polished floor and all this. And Roy Nesbitt had to work out how to create a piece of flat painted background artwork 
that would frame by frame photographed on the rostrum camera and the compound table look behind the cell animation as though the camera was tumbling. So the finished painting is a giant horseshoe. And, you know, even showing that physically in a keynote presentation or a PowerPoint presentation to people today, they're shaking their heads and going, no, no, I bet ILM did that. I bet that was in a computer. I bet that was 3D. It's not. The whole, everything that you see, every single piece of artwork, character animation, scenic background animation, foreground objects, special effects in the Maroon cartoon at the beginning of Roger Rabbit, it is all flat, all two-dimensional. Amazing. And do you think that going, following on from your point about the lenses, and you were saying actually, in a way, that it's not necessary to kind of to have that knowledge now in the same way that it was then. Oh no! It it, it well the thing is it, it it's it's absolutely necessary, but a lot of people don't bother with it. I mean, we are in an era of really aggressively um, oversimplified and defiantly ugly artwork. There's a lot of stuff that its selling point as TV animation. It's what Chuck Jones used to call illustrated radio. You've got very clever scripts, you've got fantastic dialogue, but if you turn off the audio, you have no idea what's funny, no idea what's happening. You turn off the audio on Roadrunner Coyote, you know exactly what's happening, um, because that was visual thinking by people who were trained artists. But we have a culture of shortcuts and a culture of fan art and a culture of animation being about or inspired by other animation. Back in the 30s and 40s, that wasn't the deal. People were referencing theatre, they were referencing fine art, they were referencing ballet, they were referencing, you know, everything. But we're now creating a lot of bad... A lot of it is movement. It's not animation, it's movement. Animation is movement that communicates something, and we have a lot of stuff that is just movement of figures in service of clever dialogue. And a lot of it is happening in a very two-dimensional space, but for something really to rise to the level of what I would consider animation, it has to be movement within space. And the figures have to... If you look at the Ed Benedict designs for the characters in Top Cat or the Flintstones, they look tremendously elegant and simple. But they work rotationally and three-dimensionally, again, because this was somebody who came from a background in doing all of these beautifully anatomically um, convincing cat and mouse chases in, in the 40s. And it, now we've got people who've never drawn to the level of Tom and Jerry, let alone to the level of Bambi. And everybody wants to be an animator, but they don't want to go to figure drawing classes. They don't want to learn three-point perspective. I saw a presentation last year at an event by a storyboard supervisor on a big name TV series that's been very successful all around the world. And there were hundreds of people in the room and all this work was being projected on the screen and I was sitting there going, oh my God, you can't draw. You really can't draw. And one of the students raised a question and said, what about perspective? And, and she said, oh, I, I'm not really very good at perspective. I'm like, you're a CalArts graduate and you can't do three-point perspective and you're a supervisor, a storyboard supervisor on a series? But there's, you know, the economies that people are choosing to take are economies that are possible because nobody is trying to make 
Fantasia or Prince of Egypt or Iron Giant. Everybody's just trying to hit the much, much lower bar of, I want to be a showrunner. I want to be a showrunner. I want to have my own idea and my own crazy, quirky characters who are doing this. But it is not actually prioritizing animation and it's not prioritizing particularly cinematic animation. I, I would I would argue that a huge percentage of what people are aspiring to gets no further up the ladder of quality than what Chuck Jones referred to as illustrated radio. So that's a problem so, too. So that's interesting. So just to focus in on that a bit, can you give examples of how that choice of camera angle or lens or composition then has an impact on storytelling? One of the things that came up on a discussion that we had on animation direction on a, a previous episode was about um, comedies playing more in the kind of the wide shot and actually often cutting in for a close up um, robs uh, robs the comedy of a lot of its impact because you're not seeing the reaction to what that character is doing. Are there kind of examples of how oh, sure. the choice of the camera angle, oh, the lens, or the composition really has an impact? Plenty of examples. Uh, I, I mean, if you go back to the 1930s when Disney had their enormous recruiting drive to try and bring people on board within the studio to raise the, the quality of the work in every area so that they could accomplish what they wanted to with Snow White, which was going to be their first you know, feature length piece. They knew that inside the studio, they didn't have people with the necessary talent. But if you look at the recruiting form, one of the questions is, do you have any experience of vaudeville or what we would call music hall in the UK? So if you think about Roadrunner Coyote or you think about Bugs and Daffy, you, I mean, you can see this in a lot of the Bugs and Daffy cartoons. They take place in a theater. Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck are performers in vaudeville with the straw hat and the cane and they're tap dancing. And that form of comedy in, in, the, in the book, I describe it as between the fire curtain and the footlights. When you went to the theater to experience variety performance as vaudeville in America or as music hall in the UK and, and Ireland, um, while the scene shifters were moving around the scenic elements for the dramatic presentations or for the acrobats, they would bring down the curtain and two comedians who were deliberately opposing personalities like Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello would come out and in that narrow space between the curtain and the footlights, they would perform what were very, very cleverly choreographed slapstick routines that were in that flat, narrow space. And in the book, I refer to it as like staging for business. Now, if you are thinking of something where you're sustaining a narrative over like a 90 minute film, that's a very different kind of, um, you're, you're delivering something very different to the audience. Now, when I started work on Tarzan and I got the chance to go into the layout department and I just thought, oh my God, these are the people who actually make the movie. These are the people who make this possible. I also had to be present at the story conferences. And 
the first sequence that was approved into production on Tarzan was the baboon chase, where um, the little drawing that Jane has done of the baby baboon is stolen by the baboons, and they chase her through the jungle, and Tarzan rescues her. And the reason that had to go into production early was it was they were using the deep canvas technique for the first time. There was a limited budget. There were only a certain number of sh shots that could be done using that, that, that technique. And the way that they do storyboarding um, at, at Disney, or if you go to Pixar or Sony or Warner Brothers, you know, in that particular period, every single space in the building has three metal picture rails. There's one uh, at sort of ribcage level. There are two higher ones. And the whole building is littered with 8x4 or 4x4 cork boards that have metal clips that can put them onto these picture rails. So every wall space in the Disney building or the Warner Brothers building is available for people to put artwork up on the wall, stand back and look at it, and you can see how a whole sequence evolves left to right, top to bottom, across one of these 8x4 eight, eight boards. Now, your question about position of the camera and the framing of things and the staging of things. Some of this obviously is a question of what you can afford to, to, to have, but if I am teaching people storyboarding skills and I set them an, an exercise and we put all the work up on the wall, I can immediately tell when people are doing this for the first time because in every single shot, all the most important information is smack bang in the middle of the screen rectangle, like the sights of a gun. And I have to often describe the theater experience to people because they are, they're just thinking of it as like capturing, like point your iPhone and find somebody and take a selfie. That's not what you're doing. You're moving characters around on a stage and you're making them further away or closer to the audience or to the other characters. And the other thing that's a giveaway, the camera is effectively on an imaginary tripod at the eye level of the characters. Now, if you take the scene in The Incredibles where Bob Parr is called into Mr. Huff's office and he's unhappy about the fact that he's sharing information with the clients and while they're having this argument, a guy is getting mugged out in the, the alleyway. Somewhere in Brad Bird's life, a very short person made him angry because he uses this short character as Mr. Huff, uses a, another shorter character as Chef Skinner in Ratatouille. You've got E in The Incredibles too. And Mr. Huff is this sort of despotic uh, OCD guy but there's one particular moment where the camera goes below his eyeline and he's like, close the door, come back, or you're going to lose your job. And momentarily, that helps the audience think, oh my God, this guy is actually going to win over this huge character, you know, who physically ought not to be, to be you know, conquered by this, this little, little guy. Um, so your position of the camera what you want to give power to a particular character, you want to deprive that character of influence or importance. Um, but again, if you're dealing with a bunch of people who think that three-point perspective is for sissies, <laughs> how do you get into that idea of, on the back of the book, we have artwork from Oliver and Company. And Oliver and Company was one of the first Disney movies to integrate wireframe geometry. and They used the wireframe 
car shapes for the traffic jams and for the little dog character, the Dodger character that's that's uh, voiced by Billy Joel in the uh, in the English version. So he that that dog jumps up onto a removal truck in front of a New York tenement, and then there's a grand piano that is raised up on a by a crane, and he he goes up up the front of the tenement. And the audience is then meant to believe that the camera is with the dog and the piano spinning round and turning down to look into the streets of New York City. And if you see the entire background painting as a single painting, it looks incredibly bent out of shape because you've got the side to side camera move on the truck, the bottom to top camera move in front of the tenement, which is all believable straight flat perspective. And then at the top, you've got this twisted bent thing because it's the perspective from the illustrator's point of view, the layout artist's point of view, that is letting you believe that the camera can rotate, just as we saw in the maroon cartoon with the horseshoe shaped kitchen floor for the uh, spinning like a, a balloon through the air thing that Roy Nesbitt designed. So there's a whole era of atelier art school training in terms of perspective, depth, comparative scale, focus, lighting, uh, optics, that people are not being introduced to. Not just because there are holes in the teaching at the university or art school level, but because we have zero respect for pictorial or visual communication in our school system. So up until the age of five or six, Everybody's allowed to draw or paint or do something uh, visual or, or colorful or with clay or plasticine. The moment children learn to read, write and count, it's stop drawing in your school book, stop drawing, pay attention to me, don't doodle. It's a form of disobedience. And the crazy thing is the more we learn about neurodiversity, this is how many people concentrate. It's how a lot of people digest information is to be able to doodle and visualize what's going on. Look at a company like Cognitive Media in Folkestone. Look at all of the whiteboard animation that they do to visualize the arguments that Ken Robinson presents or any of the things they did with the Royal Society. The, 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 the Japanese have never had a problem with this. People in every, at every age, in every context, socially in Japan, uh, read manga, there's a long tradition of woodblock prints, it's been very influential. But we got into this pattern of thinking that abstraction and conceptual art were some kind of evolutionary advance from representational art. And representational art in the style of the Renaissance artists just doesn't matter anymore. And that is such dangerous nonsense. And it's why we are trapped in this narrow bandwidth of extremely unambitious, often very ugly, defiantly, bravely, courageously, proudly ugly artwork that doesn't look like exists in real space. Um, and if we're talking about layout, it's movement in space. Yeah, so. and I think often that's a bit of, that artwork ends up being a little bit of a dead end really, is that it doesn't, it doesn't give you a ladder to kind of to go anywhere. Uh, we're talking a bit about education there. Is there, I kind of get the sense that you feel like in terms of higher education for animation, maybe there's areas that could be improved in the current state of um, the way that's taught. Is that, would that be fair? Well, yeah, I mean, historically, I, you know, again, this is a matter of record. It's not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of lived experience for me is being asked to go in and I'll give you an example. Early on, um, I got a call from 
somebody who was in charge of an animation course at a university that I won't name. And the guy said, you know, we got a rough ride from our external assessors last year. And they told us that our graduation animated films are not particularly good. Uh, you've just, you know, you've been at Disney, Warner Brothers, Passion Pictures, you worked in tele- Can you come in and, you know, give us some pointers? And I went in and I was put in a room with the final year students um, and there were 24 of them. And there was all, the, there were all these tables. I, I don't really know what they were expecting me to do, but they, they all had like artwork that was, you know, their preliminary stuff for their graduation films. And it was the beginning of their final year. And it was scattered over all these tables. And I was just standing there, they were all looking at me. And it was like, here, I was this great genius guy that was gonna come in with a magic wand and tell them what to do. And so I started and I said, okay, well, just so that I can make sense of what is in front of me, how many graduation films are you making? And they kind of laughed and shrugged and went, well, you know, 24, there's 24 students, everybody's making their own film. And I went, well, that's probably number one problem here. You should be making a maximum of three films with a crew of eight people on each film, and then you could get something of quality. Oh, we can't do that. Because well, everyone not? wants well, to be the auteur, don't they? Environment. And it's and yeah, and it's also their system of grading people or assessing their progress. It's all about the individual. And we have this problem, this sticking point about the idea of teaching people to be artists. You're basically teaching them to die poor, suffer, be misunderstood, and you know, that's the great um, profile. Well, okay, do that. But Van Gogh never made a movie. Frida Kahlo never made a movie. None of these people, it's not, it, you are training people to be part of a, a big visual orchestra. Yeah. It's not all it's the imagine Beethoven's ninth if it's only one violin player at the front. That's not an orchestra. So they, I, I looked at the table of all this artwork all these years ago and I tried to identify something that looked like I could understand what the student had in mind. And I picked up a piece of 12 field animation paper and there was a little scribble that suggested that there was a group of characters in the distance in the top left hand corner of the frame who were running towards the camera and then the camera was going to follow them as they went to the right. And I said, okay, um, I think I understand what you're trying to do here. Why are you using 12 field paper? And there was a, a whispering around the room of what's, what's 12 field paper? And I said, well, there are different sizes of animation paper. You could use 15 or six. And they were like, oh, wow, there's different sizes of animation paper, who knew? And I said, and if you want this to happen, how are you gonna plan this without your field guides or without your, uh, you know, your cell that's showing you how the camera frames the smaller image and how it pulls back to what's a field guide. I said, if they're going to go left to right, where's your panning peg bar so that we can get onto the other pegs? What's a panning peg bar? So I said, okay, if you don't have any of this basic kit in the building, how are you guys doing layout? And there was a total silence. And then a hand went up at the back of the room and this woman went, uh, what's layout? And she wow. was the course leader for a, a degree level animation course at a university. Wow. And that was nearly 25 years ago. And I have been lucky recently to join a school here in Mexico, uh, Escuela Escena, where the only reason the school exists is to prepare people for the animation, video game, visual effects, comics industries. So I do not have to burn up energy 
arguing with a group of university managers about the, the, how this is a real subject. But then you have this other issue that you've got people setting up courses. And the reason that the universities got involved in this is that the model for university teaching changed. Universities used to be exclusive and they used to be about um, excellence. And then it turned and it had to be, no, it had to be a competitive commercial model and bring in as many students as possible. The only way you can bring in a lot of students is if you are teaching subjects that are unregulated. Because if you're teaching a subject like engineering or architecture or medicine, God forbid, these are all subjects that are, um, you know, they're, they're tightly um, governed and supervised by law and by industry and by government. If you produce a bunch of, um, you know, auteur artists who can't even get a cortometraje or short format animation into Annecy, there is no penalty. You're accountable to absolutely nobody. So these media subjects became incredibly attractive to universities. And the, the, the courses, even the best ones that exist, are dominated by a university context where you teach the creative skills and you teach the technical skills. So people are learning to be artists or they're learning to be programmers. And we have hardly anybody training people how to be producers, production coordinators, contract lawyers, and everybody sits back and goes, well, why aren't we producing, why aren't we as successful as Pixar? Well, because you're not following that model. And if you're in a country in Scandinavia or Europe where the government uh, provides money for animation, and this is what was interesting listening to your conversation with Andrew Baker, um, if you go through the forms, all these things about the incentives that are available, I have never seen a form where you, people are saying, oh, I hope I can get money from the government you know, to help me set up a team to make this animated feature. And you can go into co-production and benefit from other deals in other countries. None of those forms, to the best of my knowledge, contain anything saying, oh, by the way, we will invest this much money and we will expect a return on that investment. So you generate this, uh, this whole culture where people get good at filling in the forms to get the funding from people who have set the conditions, people who have never made a movie, never made a TV series, don't understand animation, but they as a government want to be seen to be culturally active and artistically supportive. So we must have a cinema industry, we must have an animation industry and we will subsidize that. But there's no point at which people have to think about how this can be monetized. And what that does is it leaves the ball in the court of the people whose primary goal is monetization. And it goes right back in a loop to what I suffered in the 1980s, which was being told for three whole years, stop drawing like that. Nobody needs that any, any, anymore. Nobody likes that. It's not clever. You know, haven't you seen Picasso? Nobody draws that way anymore. And I, I knew in my bones that there was a reason, like, Practicing your scales as a musician or stretching your muscles as a track and field athlete or a, a, a dancer. You go to figure drawing class. You draw architect. You, you master these things. And like I say, that was what opened the door to me for working with Disney was that I was still getting those, those, those skills at a time when, you know, the, the, the art school I went to in Glasgow still emphasized that. In 2016, we were doing a training project with Sony in Glasgow where they provided all these mentors. It was called the Animation Base Camp. And it was an eight-week training initiative where the students got to work directly with professionals in the industry. And we wanted to do a gesture drawing class. And I went, oh, I'll go back to the Glasgow School of Art and I'll borrow some easels. 
They couldn't even find them. They didn't, this was before the Glasgow School of Art building burned down. They didn't know where they were because they were no longer, that was kind of like an affectation because their priority was how do we win as many Turner Prizes as we can. And okay, win the Turner Prize, but if you're going for a job uh, to interview as a level designer with Blizzard Games, you can't say, oh, I brought my shark with me or I brought my unmade bed. You know, conceptually, that may be very clever and important, but it won't get you a job in the commercial animation industry. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and what all of those traditional skills, I think, teach you more than anything is teaches you to look and observe Observation is key, absolutely. And patience, observation and patience. Yeah, and that's almost as important as just the technical skill of being able to render something realistically. It's the fact that your eye has been trained to observe and look at what's happening. Completely. And, and what I do every, if I could do it every day, I would. But here in Guadalajara, um, I go out drawing as, as often as I can and I draw musicians playing live because there's a very active live music culture here in Guadalajara so you are having to I can't go up to the stage and go could you just stay still because I'm trying to draw you the whole idea is how do you create movement for an animated character if you have never studied or observed or captured movement live so I we did a, a series of drawing workshops um, at the Pixelatl Animation Festival here in, in September. And we had live musicians playing accordion and trombone in steampunk uh, costumes. We had a juggler with a bicycle and an umbrella and they were moving the whole time. And the students have to um, take a deep breath and work out how to capture that. But how do you generate it if you've never captured it? Um, and the number of students that would say to me, uh, I've never drawn movement before. And I'm like, you're training to be an animator. Of course you're supposed to draw movement. So it's, um, you know, yeah, there, there's, there's a whole other week long series of podcasts that we could go into about training and skills um, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I think one of the things I, I was struck by in the UK specifically is, uh, and this may have been amplified by the whole situation post Brexit, is that yeah. I think a lot of animation companies suddenly were having to be quite concerned and focused on not having a steady supply of European talent and so having to kind of recruit people more locally. And I think some of them maybe had a question about the skill level that the universities in the UK were were supplying for kind of animation crews. And I think I noticed that... Well, there's, that no, I, there's no portfolio requirement on most courses. You yeah. can get in without any presentation folio of basic drawing skills. And then the people who are trying to teach storyboarding or layout or character design, they're having to do two jobs at once. They're having to fill in. You know, we don't do this with musical skills. If we've got a kid that's interested in music that shows talent, we get them an instrumental uh, instructor, they get into a youth orchestra and they go out and perform. If we've got a child that's got sporting skill, they get a, a coach, they get a junior league team, they go out and compete. If you've got a kid that shows any skill artistically or pictorially or visually, leave them alone in their bedroom and wait for them to get famous. <laughs> what is wrong with this picture? And because we've got this idea that, you know, drawing is a form of disobedience, that, you know, don't draw in your school book, don't draw, pay attention while I'm talking, we now don't have teachers in primary schools or secondary schools. I was lucky, I went to a school in Edinburgh that had a separate building 
for art and design. We had equipment to do enameling, printmaking, ceramics. We had a fantastic art and design history course. Art and design history, visual communication is not part of our historical teaching for kids. So they come in as teenagers who are realizing that the, you know, there's all this discussion and activity on, on social media about you know, how cool it is to make these pictures of you know, copies from anime or manga and they get lots of you know, uh, likes and hearts and oh, you're so clever for drawing Sailor Moon or for you know, drawing whatever it is. And these kids are horrified and terrified that they might have to go out into the world with a sketchbook and draw what's in their neighborhood or draw their grandparents or their pet dog or whatever. I have a huge amount of time that I have to spend, and this has been true for all the time that I've been teaching, simply trying to get people to a position where they are not scared to be identified as an artist in a public place. And I think that's got to change. We've got to get people comfortable. We have to reintroduce a, a, a healthy, realistic respect for visual communication, particularly at a time where the whole world, six out of the seven billion population of the world on mobile devices or access to computers where they're interacting with animated content 24 hours a day. Most people, the first thing they do when they wake up is swipe and clear in all their apps on their phone. Last thing they do before they go to bed. Who do you think is animating that? Mice? The, you know. <laughs> This is being, the, the, all of the user interface, the user experience, all of the, anything that you see moving in the digital realm is down to somebody understanding the importance of visual communication. There's an amazing book by a Harvard professor called Margaret Livingston called Vision and Art, The Biology of Seeing. And something like a character silhouette, there are primal stone age cerebral evolutionary reasons why we respond to particular shapes, particular patterns, edge recognition, combinations of colors, position of light, like a face. If you take a human face, even before a baby has learned to talk, and even if it's the, the baby's parent, if you take a flashlight in the dark and you put it below your face, the baby will scream. If you put the, the flashlight above, the, the brain knows what the happy pattern of shadow and light is on a human face. And that's with a, a lighting position above, not below. So you go to any theater, any illustration, you want to show a character that's up to no good, they're lit from below. And these are things that are not a matter of personal, cultural, artistic taste. It's a matter of how we respond in the same way. It's a kind of visual DNA. Absolutely. And most art schools, I was at university for a year doing history of art. I was learning to be a designer for four years. Nobody in all those five years spoke to us about the human eye, the human visual cortex, why we respond to these things. So everything that happens in editorial in a movie, read Walter Murch. The title of his book, In the Blink of an Eye, is referring to the fact that our basic human responses with the way that the information goes in to the eye, up the optic nerve, into the visual cortex, all of these things are present in our cinematic language of visual editorial and continuity. It's not a question of individual taste. 
And these things are profoundly unpopular in the context of the academic or the intellectual world. Where it's, oh, no, no, we, you know, we're, we're trying to tear up the rule book. Well, you might want to read it before you tear it up. Yeah, uh, and I think part way. of that is based on um, <laughs> is based on an insecurity from a lot of those figures that they they maybe don't have the knowledge to be able to to be able to teach eloquently sure. about visual psychology yeah, and sure. about uh, the the basics of that. Um, going back to, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on who who you feel is doing this stuff well that uh, that's producing and animating at the moment are there any examples of ones where you go well that's brilliantly done that's something that kind of that's been really well done so um th this, this is an interesting question i'm going to answer this in a way that's maybe going to um get me into trouble in <laughs> 2018 fine. um i was in madrid i was invited to do some um classes by a school called Lightbox that's been set up by an animation producer called Nico Marchi. He does a series of animated films called Tadeo Jones and wanted to train artists to a level where they could work on the movies. And I was doing a presentation at Lightbox and there's another school there called Voxel that's training people more for the visual effects industry. And I was looking at layouts, looking at storyboard. And this was while Klaus was in production at Sergio Pablo's animation studios. And Sergio animated Tantor, the hypochondriac elephant in, in Tarzan. And I had a friend called Steve McDermott, who's a special effects animator, another guy like me who left Scotland in the 80s, went to work for, he worked at Disney in Florida, he worked on Mulan, he worked on Lilo and Stitch. And Steve was working on the effects animation on Klaus. And he said, while you're in Madrid, come and say hello to Sergio. And I'm like, Sergio won't remember me. You know, the job I had on Tarzan as artistic coordinator was putting out fires and, and Sergio was just so good at everything that he did. There were never any problems with his scenes. It was butter off a knife. He was so, uh, he was so clever and so um, patient and so um, deliberate in everything that he did. I said, he won't remember me from a crack in the pavement. And Steve said, well, come over anyway. And I was standing in the corridor at Spa Studios and Sergio came around the corner and pointed at me and went, Fraser McLean. And I'm like, how do you remember me? And he said, you wrote a book on layout. Oh, uh, what? And I said, yeah. And he said, how long are you in Madrid for? And I said, well, I'm, I'm here until I fly back on, on Sunday. He said, are you available on Friday evening? Could we, could you do a workshop for our, and we stood and talked. And when they were crewing up, they had Armin Melkonian, they had Scott Capel, they had a lot of experienced feature animation, uh, layout workbook guys around, but they needed a large number of people and nobody was teaching layout, nobody. So they couldn't recruit because there were no graduates in, in layout. So they found themselves the successful candidates for jobs in the layout and uh, background departments at, 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 uh, on Klaus were predominantly young concept artists from the video game industry. And Sergio said, but the problem there is in video games, you don't have cuts. So the whole idea of camera language and position and, and lens language, they're not really familiar with that. And they're also not, they don't have the confidence often in the importance of their role. So I went in and I did a two, two hour presentation on layout on the Friday evening. And I was, when I went over there, I'm thinking, no one's gonna turn up. This is Madrid, they'll be out having a beer, having dinner, nobody's gonna wanna listen to some bald guy talking about layout. And the room was packed, like the, the, the preview theater was absolutely crammed. 
And at the end of it, I was kind of carried out like a rock star. And we went for dis- dinner afterwards. And one of the young layout artists was like, um, at what point did you realize that animation was so important to you? And I kind of heard myself saying sort of like out of body experience. Well, when it was taken away from me, you know, because I spent 15 years building up to where I was on Tarzan. And then because my mother developed Alzheimer's disease, my father developed cancer, I had to stop and look after the situation. So I had a real hunger for it where I, when I got reinvolved. And a few months later, one of the anima- uh, one of the animation layout guys from, from Klaus, and this was after the movie came out, it was a great big success. His girlfriend was in Colombia and he was traveling in Latin America and he sent me a message on social media and he said, you know, that evening, that Friday evening, we all shuffled in there from the layout department thinking that we were kind of nobody. We were like the poor cousins. And so we went in on the Monday morning thinking that we were the most important people in the building. And I said, that's why Sergio asked me to do the presentation, because you guys are so important. And I think Klaus, for all that they had this battle to not reinvent Leia, but you know they had to build a team with absolutely no available training or, or knowledge. When you watch that movie, it, it is visually, it's poetry. It's stunningly beautiful. And it's, it's not beautiful for the sake of beauty. It's beautiful for the sake of every individual point that needs to be communicated about the story, about the character, about the emotion. It is not gratuitous. It's not eye candy. And I think this is the big mistake that people often make. It's like, oh, they were influenced by Ivan Earl. They were doing this like, look, just shush, shush. <laughs> Watch this and put on your Citizen Kane hat and look at this at a pe- as a piece of cinema. And trust me, kill the sound, you can still enjoy that movie. No disrespect to the audio and the music people, oh, yeah, because absolutely. that's another thing that goes wrong You know, very often is that people are very dismissive about the importance of music and audio in animation, which is pivotal. Um, but the visual side of it uh, on a movie like um, Klaus, I think it, Klaus is, is, a, is a fantastic example uh, under very difficult circumstances, almost like what they were doing on Snow White, doing it for the first time, but getting killer results onto the screen. And also because the people in charge, the people supervising, had that knowledge of and that passion for cinematic storytelling, yep. not illustrated radio, cinematic storytelling. Yeah, it, no, it's magical and it's got, it really is... It's the storytelling. A lot of all of the shots and the yeah. framing is yeah. there to motivate character and story. It's not an indulgence. It's a it's a fabulous movie. So my final question was whether you had <laughs> any piece of advice or feedback that you've received that has really stayed with you as the kind of the best piece of advice you might have got from somebody. Um, can I kind of spin that around a little bit? Um, I, I was. I was invited during the later stages of the pandemic to um, do an uh, online presentation for some students at one of the universities in, in California. And while I was listening to the students talking about their, because I always, I'm, I'm always, I always prefer to know who I'm talking to. Uh, you know, obviously, if there's 200 people, you can't know who everybody is. But this was quite a small group of students, and I, I wanted to know what their aspirations were, where they were headed, what their goals were in the industry. And over and over again, 
um, the students would say, well, if I get this job at Pixar, I'll be really happy. If I get this internship at this place, I'm going to be so happy if that happens. And it was all, I will be happy if dot, dot, dot. And in response at the end of it, where they did the Q&A and they said, okay, have you got any advice that you would give? I said, based on what you've all been talking about and the idea that um, you will be happy if you get this particular uh, you know, result. I said, I think it's dangerous to think of happiness as something off in the distance, like a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. And between me and happiness, there's this obstacle course that I've got to get through. I said, I think you'll probably find, because a lot of the work you're going to be doing is not in your list of top five great jobs. Most people want to be a concept artist or a character designer. In most situations in most countries, those are not entry-level positions. I said, I think my advice would be take happy with you. Even if you yourself are miserable when you get up in the morning and you go into work, even if the project you're working on stinks and you don't think it's any good, do your best work on it and be a source of happiness for the people around you. If you're chasing after your own personal goal of happiness, everybody in the building is going to be miserable because they're going to be imagining the same thing that off in the distance is my prize. And that's not how this works. And one of the things that is not taught often enough or not emphasized often enough is kindness. People need to be kind to one another because often, as things presently stand in these industries, people are under a lot of pressure. They don't have security of employment. They don't know what the next project is they're going on to after they've been through crunch time on this one. People feel obliged to work additional overtime hours without being paid. Um, it's not a question of your individual skill or you know talent in inverted commas, which is a word I have no patience for because it's like cooking or driving. It's just hours. It's not talent. It's not a gift from God. It's not something supernatural. You need to be the person in the room when the shit hits the fan at two in the morning that's going to go out and buy coffee and pizza for everybody and make sure that everyone's okay. If somebody doesn't turn up, you need to be the person that checks that they're okay. And if somebody's having difficulty hitting the deadline, you need to be the person that helps them go in and talk to the, um, the production team about how you're going to need more time or move things around. And those are soft, human, compassionate skills. But so often the emphasis is on individual brilliance. And I have absolutely zero tolerance for the idea of the auteur approach. Because my own experience of working for people that consider themselves to be auteurs is they are an absolute merciless nightmare to work for or to be around because they think it's all about them. And a couple of weeks in any layout department in a functioning feature animation studio will give you a very clear idea as a director or somebody with a grand vision that no, it's not all about you. It's about the story, it's about the audience, and it's about actually making stuff achievable. And uh, that's not going around with your hand on your forehead feeling misunderstood. The whole idea is how you can make your ideas understood you know, for the practical process of getting it onto the screen. And once it's on the screen, understood by the audience. That's, that's layout. <laughs> Amazing. 
that's a fantastic place to end it i think uh thanks so much for this chat it's been really really enjoyable uh, fascinating. thanks for the invitation andy i really appreciate it and thanks for doing the podcast we need more podcasts like this for sure yeah I mean, and it's a. I mean, it's for for me. It kind of it's a it's a learning experience as much as anything, and it's just a real privilege to be able to um, chat to people that bring their own perspectives to it. So, kind of really appreciate that. It's it's my pleasure, and the perspective that I can bring, I have to reiterate, it's the perspective of all of these people that I got to meet and interview and talk to and work with. This is not me being you know uh, anything it's me carrying around this information and trying to find as many situations as possible in which i can make it available i'm not going to go off and i'm 62 nobody's going to ask me to direct a series or be a showrunner or direct an animated feature but i'm surrounded here in mexico by young kids that are effectively the next chapter of animation history and i love the idea that you know i can share with them something that bill perkins told me that ken o'connor i'm always saying to them these are your ancestors you know when we're doing the history of animation it's not about dead people it's not about the past animation history is a living thing and all the students at the moment who are uh, moving in that direction getting into the industry in any of these departments in any of these roles are the future of animation history and I, I want them to feel empowered by knowledge that they're actually going to be able to use so that the vision that they are part of getting onto the screen is is going to be as successful as it can be but it's not i don't have ownership of this stuff and it's not my own uh, I, i've accumulated this <laughs> but it's an incredibly important task to be able to kind of pass that torch on and and the idea of kind of it being living history it has a real utility if you if you know and understand it that can really be applied to the work that people are doing at the moment so i think it's really important can i can i share one final thing um, the animation director, Mats Grorud, who's uh, from Norway, uh, he's working on a, 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 another film at the moment, but his first animated feature is called The Tower. Uh, the Arabic title is Vardi, the name of the little girl who's at the center of the story. It's a stop motion film uh, about Palestinian refugees in one of the camps in Beirut in Lebanon. And the contemporary uh, scenes are all created with puppet animation and the flashback to the Palestinian exodus is all done in hand-drawn animation. And there's a particularly disturbing scene in the movie which uh, we were screening it for some students here in Guadalajara and there was silence when the lights went on after this, this uh, scene played out. And one of the students raised the question of, you're, you're working with very sensitive, very real world, true story material here. Why are you using puppets and drawings? And Mats said, in the world we inhabit, we're surrounded 24 hours a day by live action footage in news and documentary to which most of us eventually become pretty desensitized. And in live action drama, we see things in great photorealistic close-up and it's all very unpleasant, whatever. He said, if we've got a story as important as this to communicate and to share, when we're using animation, the door to the audience's heart is left open. And I think he's got a very important point. And I think that's what has been understood for thousands of years in so many cultures where pictorial uh, rendering of a story is not sneered at. We have a huge problem 
in uh, the United Kingdom and in other cultures, if a book has pictures, it's for children or idiots. Nobody in these other cultures has ever been that dismissive of pictorial communication. And if we go back to the cave paintings, Mark Azema, the French paleontologist, he's keyframed a lot of the line drawings of these animals, and it's all food chain information, it's all survival information. And if you listen to Brian McDonald's You Are a Storyteller podcast, the thing that he and Jesse Bryan go back to again and again is storytelling is survival information. And I myself don't believe animation is trivial. I don't think it's just distraction or entertainment, even when it is in the form of children's or families' entertainment. Because what more important thing could there be than sharing life skills through narrative with children? Absolutely. It doesn't get much more important than that. And I'm tired of being part of conversations where people are looking at the animation media as being something disposable or extra or decorative. I just think that's nonsense. And I just want one final kind of follow up on that. I think it's because something is being visually kind of recreated that actually the audience ends up seeing something with fresh eyes and seeing it anew. So Absolutely. It, so Absolutely. It, can, it can be a real doorway into a real life situation that of you course. then see from a completely different perspective because it's unlike the real world, but yet it has a connection to that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a great, great point to end on. Thanks again, Fraser. That's been a great discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Animated Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with any of your animation loving friends. See you next time.